0: Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined for this show by Christian Oppie, who is a history professor at UMass and is with us today because he is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy, Chris Oppie also is one of the leading experts in the country on the Vietnam War and has written some three books about the Vietnam War and its experience and its effect on the United States. And we so welcome him to our show today to help us reflect on the passing of Dan Ellsberg. Dan Ellsberg's passing has been front page news across the country. It has been the lead story for much of the media, for a number of days across the country. And what I would appreciate from you, uh, Professor Oppie, is your perspective on why Dan Ellsberg is so important to the country, not only historically, but in terms of why he has such and has had, has had such an effect on all of us so that his passing really is a milestone for the country, and I'd appreciate your thoughts about that.
1: Thanks, Bill. One key thing is I think we're really looking for models of principled activism and moral courage, and uh, Ellsberg really has exemplified that uh, throughout the last 50-plus years of his life. I mean, he became famous in the early 70s because he was the only official within the, the government uh, that had uh, really created this growing, uh, increasingly unpopular war in Vietnam uh, to break radically with it uh, and to, to take extreme personal risks in trying to change the policies he had helped put in place by exposing to the public and to Congress this top secret history of the Vietnam War that came to be known as the Pentagon Papers. But, you know, one of the things that's gratified me about the obituaries and uh, the, the intense coverage that you alluded to upon his death a couple of days ago is that they uh, more, more, more often than not have presented him not just as a, as a historical figure that did something 50 years ago that was impressive, but that he continues to, to be... An inspiration to younger people, e- even those I've discovered students who, who don't really know about him when they come to class, but having learned about his life, do find uh, in his example a, r- a real inspiration. I mean, he, to his last breath, uh, he was commenting on issues of public policy, uh, reminding us of the dangers presented by the, uh, the nuclear weapons and ongoing conflicts in in the world and. Um, you know, in the course of his lifetime, he he committed acts of uh, nonviolent civil disobedience for which he was arrested uh, roughly 80 times uh, since the days of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, Professor
0: Oppie, I'd like to go back to a phrase you just used that I think is not obscured, but is at least not emphasized in the story and the telling of the story of the life of Daniel Ellsberg, and that is that what became known, the study that Robert McNamara, Defense Secretary Robert McNamara commissioned on the history of the Vietnam War that became known as the Pentagon Papers, a huge study. You used the phrase with regard to Ellsberg, turned against policies that he helped put in place. That's a fascinating part of this story. The, the milieu and the uh, education and the piece of the American establishment that Ellsberg came from. Tell us more about that. And then I'd like to know what it was that made Ellsberg have this epiphany that what he has stood for, worked for, and implemented was, at least in Vietnam, was all wrong.
1: Yes. Well, this foreign policy establishment of which he was a part um, was, still is, but especially in those days, the 50s and 60s, Uh, a real uh, men's club of almost entirely very privileged, uh, elite college, military background, people who fervently believed in American exceptionalism and our right and responsibility basically to to order the world uh, along our uh, lines. And in the context of the Cold War competition with the, the communist world, uh, the Vietnam War, as it was understood by Ellsberg and others, was seen as an essential piece of this larger global effort uh, to to check the the threat they saw posed by to uh, stop communism. what was yeah. known
0: as the domino theory. Yes. If one country fell, and Vietnam fell, then Cambodia would fall, and Thailand would fall, and Laos would fall, and and that is fall to communism. Ellsberg came to that in part because of his educational background. He, he was a graduate of Harvard. He was very immersed and enmeshed in all of that.
1: Yeah, he got his Ph.D. in economics from Harvard. Uh, bef- before getting that, he had actually volunteered for the Marine Corps and served uh, for two years in the, after Korea in the mid-'50s, uh, uh, then went on to be a consultant with a think tank known as the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, whose almost, in those days, entire budget came from the Air Force, and they were involved... Um, he, and ran too, but he especially involved in nuclear war planning, uh, which is a whole other side of Ellsberg's life that is less well known than his involvement with the Vietnam War, but uh, he, he was uh, equally passionate about. But yes, he, he was an insider who, who uh, initially believed that uh, the war in Vietnam was a just, difficult, problematic, to be sure, but a kind of problem to be solved, and he was one of McNamara's kind of young bright analyst that came to be known as the Whiz kids they were going to figure out a a way to fight this war more effectively. So he worked in the Pentagon uh, for more than a year and then decided he really needed to see the war firsthand. So he volunteered to go over for the State Department for two years in the mid-60s. And it was that experience that uh, really convinced him uh, that the, the, the solutions that he could see and recommend were really, first of all, not going to be implemented. And even if they were, he became increasingly doubtful that they'd make any difference. He really did come home in 67 believing that this was an unwinnable war, from which the United States should find some face-saving exit, if it it could, over time. But not yet a really radical position on the war. Though over the next couple of years, 67 to 69, as he became involved in uh, uh, working on the uh, compiling the Pentagon Papers for McNamara. He uh, was one of the few people that actually read the whole damn thing, you know, 7,000 pages, and that's really... A 7,000 page y- yeah, history of American yeah, involvement and, 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 in and, and, Vietnam. And, it, and it, what, one of the things it really demonstrated uh, is that administration after administration, both Democratic and Republican, from Harry Truman through, through Lyndon Johnson, Uh, had uh, plenty of evidence that the American objectives uh, in Vietnam um, were not uh, easily uh, achievable. And in fact, that the best you could probably uh, do, these presidents were advised, was to delay defeat, to sort of uh, (laughs) put it off to the next administration. But none of them had the moral courage uh, to find a way to end it. Uh, And yet, at the same time, they were telling the public year after year, that this was an essential war and one where we were actually making progress. Difficult as the war was, we were going to prevail.
0: Right, Kennedy and the light at the end of the tunnel and all that. I remember the press conferences. Mm -hmm. What I would appreciate a better understanding of is how and why Ellsberg determined, decided, concluded that copying the Pentagon Papers in secret, which was reveal American military secrets, obviously a serious crime, how that public disclosure, because he eventually gave it to the New York Times and the Washington Post, how and why he thought that would actually influence American policy. I, I mean, th- that's obviously self-evident mm-hmm. with hindsight being 2020, 20, but I'm not sure it was self-evident to everyone right. at the moment. Could you or even com- to him. Could you comment <laughs> yeah, on Dan that?
1: Dan was not at all convinced that his uh, revelation of, of this history was going to make much of a difference because he understood that it it ended with the administration of Johnson. And by the time the papers went to uh, were revealed and published by some 19 newspapers, it was 1971, and we were in the middle of the Nixon administration. The papers had nothing to say about Nixon. But he was hoping that... Um, Americans would pick up on this pattern of lying that had preceded Nixon so that they could raise the same kinds of questions about what Nixon was doing. He was worried that too many Americans had become convinced that Nixon really was going to make good on his pledge to to bring peace in Vietnam and that he, he was getting us out when in fact Ellsberg was convinced that he, and rightly so, that uh, Nixon had every intention to win the war, and he was, although slowly withdrawing some American ground troops, greatly intensifying the air war and extending and expanding, intensifying the war in Cambodia and Laos, and Ellsberg saw it going on indefinitely. So he he just hoped that people would see in these papers a kind of model to question and doubt ongoing policy.
0: let me ask this. Uh, we are speaking with uh, history professor, UMass history professor, uh, uh, Christian Oppie. He is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass. In the reporting, again, page one story in The Republican, uh, page one in the Daily Hampshire Gazette, page one of The New York Times, uh, in, in this story, it, it says this, and I quote a couple sentences Ellsberg was awarded an honorary degree from the University of Massachusetts Amherst earlier this year. He, the UMass, the UMass Library acquired the archives, the Ellsberg Archives, for some two point two million dollars. Uh, it is a major, major, uh, probably a bad word, coup for the UMass to have uh, achieved these archives uh, and this collection, all of the Ellsberg. Papers because he he kept I don't know if he kept everything but he kept a lot I mean his 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 collection of documents over the past half century plus is actually a major acquisition for any would be for any university UMass Amherst it made made this part of its collection I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about how it came to be that Dan Ellsberg was so, so respectful of UMass Amherst and its library that he gave his collection to UMass.
1: Well, I think he was impressed by the uh, tradition at UMass and its libraries, and particularly this special collections and university archives, of collecting papers on uh, social justice movements, activist, uh, um, uh, other. Uh, other uh, peace apostles like Ellsberg, and in fact that library is named after one of the, the, the great uh, uh, seekers of justice uh, in U.S. history, W.E.B. Du Bois. So all of that impressed Dan, and he also knew that a friend of his had his papers uh, at UMass. The friend was named Randy Keeler, a local activist who had greatly inspired Dan uh, by uh, resisting the draft and being willing to go to prison uh, for, for two years. Uh, Ellsberg heard Keeler speak in 1969 and uh, was deeply moved to, to, to the point of, of tears by um, Keeler's description of his why he was resisting the war and his willingness to sacrifice personally uh, to oppose it. Uh, it was at that moment that Dan really asked himself, what what might I do, you know, if I were willing to take such risks to s- sacrifice my career and perhaps even go to prison uh, if I could perhaps help end this war? Uh, so it was really just a month later that he began copying the Pentagon Papers.
0: I would like to know from you, uh, Professor uh, Chris Oppie, how it came to be that Daniel Ellsberg, who was prosecuted for espionage, who was looking at decades, potentially decades and decades in prison, who had stolen uh, this secret study of the United States history, uh, revealed it publicly, uh, was viewed and termed as the most dangerous man in America by Henry Kissinger uh, and, and the Nixon administration, can be described at the time of his death by Marty Meehan, who's the president of UMass. As an American patriot and hero, how did that come to be?
1: Well, I do think that Ellsberg believed that he was acting out of the highest uh, form of patriotism, in uh, honoring uh, the uh, values and principles that he believed um, should be held to the uh, up by the United States, and that were being betrayed by U.S. policy. So. It, it was by, by the time he took his really courageous actions, uh, he had a profound moral critique of the war. It was not just a mistake, it was not just unwinnable. He found it as a, um, a, fun, as a war of aggression and, and therefore a criminal war uh, that, ha- that had to be ended at all costs, uh, e- even the greatest personal costs. So uh, I really think he was focused uh, really not so much on himself, but the ongoing uh, carnage. In Southeast Asia, and he was not alone. This is a point I've really tried to make. He was, although uh, he's rightly um, applauded for his moral courage, um, there were millions of Americans who were profoundly changing their mind about the Vietnam War, and people like Randy Keeler who who were also willing to take great personal risks uh, to, to to end it. So that it's 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 not just the you know while it's important I think to honor individual whistleblowers. Uh, uh, that was a time where there was an enormous movement uh, in, in support of this.
0: We are speaking with Chris Oppie, who is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. We're going to continue our remembrances of an American hero, Dan Ellsberg, right after this.
2: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
3: Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
4: It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Miss Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator.
2: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
4: Let's recap how many ways Franklin First Federal Credit Union makes life simpler for you. Checking accounts? It's totally free. Plus, we have teen and senior checking options. Savings? Think traditional. Plus, HSAs, money markets, club accounts, and CDs. Convenience? How about direct deposit? Real-time payment? Overdraft protection? Free online banking and mobile deposits. Life simplified. Visit franklinfirst.org and learn more. franklinfirst.org, Franklin First Federal Credit Union member NCUA.
2: What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from one to seven. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit waitleyinn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley.
5: Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and family secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region. Region and the Northampton Radio Group. You're listening
2: to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: We continue our remembrance of Dan Ellsberg. We are speaking with Christian Oppie, who is the director at UMass Amherst of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. He is an historian, he is one of the country's leading experts and authors on the Vietnam War, including American Reckoning the Vietnam War, and our national identity. Uh, Professor Oppie we were talking during the break about the Ellsberg case that went to the United States Supreme Court that is celebrated as this great First Amendment victory. The court did not impose or allow the imposition of an injunction to prevent the publication of the Pentagon Papers by the Washington Post and the New York Times. But in hindsight, and maybe at the time, it actually wasn't that clear of a First Amendment victory as it was? uh, Well, tell us your perspective.
1: Well, first, I I want to remind people that the Nixon uh, White House and the Justice Department's effort to block uh, the publication of the Pentagon Papers to literally stop the presses by issuing a prior restraint uh, injunction was the first time that had ever happened in, in U.S. history. The prior restraint. The prior restraint, it's stopping uh, the planned article from being published. And um, the Supreme Court did rule quickly uh, in support of the newspapers, uh, and there was uh, some, some uh, deference to First Amendment rights, but the thrust of the decision hinged on the failure of the... Uh, the government to demonstrate that the publication of the Pentagon Papers posed uh, a substantial threat to national security. So it sort of leaves, uh, to this day, open the question that, uh, open to question the possibility that if the government could uh, uh, intimidate, might be able to intimidate the press from publishing something if it it had a strong case that, uh, or they believed it had a strong case that they could demonstrate that this was a real threat to security. Yes, the condemnation of the prior restraint is actually, I
0: think, the most important part yeah. of the opinion, at least in terms of its lasting impact. I would like to ask you one other, about one other aspect of this story, and I'm reading now from the Associated Press story. It says, leaking to the Times, the New York Times, was not Ellsberg's first choice. He had hoped that government officials, including Henry Kissinger, would read the study and realize the war was hopeless— Legislators turning him down included Senator William Fulbright of Arkansas, the longtime chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, and Senator George McGovern of South Dakota, of all people. He thought the government officials would read the study and come to the same conclusion as he did. In some ways, you read that and say, really, this brilliant, sophisticated person had this completely naive notion? Can you square that circle for us?
1: Yeah, there is a strain of naivete in Ellsberg, particularly in those younger years. And, uh, but part of it is linked to his own intense intellectual um, focus <laughs> and the fact that he himself had his mind changed when he immersed himself in these materials. Why wouldn't others change their mind if they were exposed to this? Um, and he was uh, deeply disappointed that um, anti-war senators like Fulbright and McGovern weren't willing uh, to um, really, in effect, you know, read the papers into the record. You don't have to read them all, and you can read a few pages and then ask that not the rest of them be put in. That would have been a, a way of doing it that might have gotten more public attention than newspapers. Uh, in part because uh, he, he was hopeful that Congress would then conduct hearings, not necessarily on this, uh, this old history of the uh, decades of involvement, but hearings that would call into question what's happening right now under, under Nixon, using the papers to sort of raise the, the, the pertinent questions. But uh, you know, as you suggested, um, neither Fulbright nor Mc- McGovern uh, uh, really were willing to do it. McGovern was already planning a presidential election. He thought it would be too risky. Um, F- F- Fulbright, uh, was dubious that it would really make that much, uh, difference, and, uh, he, 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 too, had, pl- he, he, th- he, was worried that it would make the Democrats, uh, look worse. So, so much for of... Fulbright
6: scholarship, huh? Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a great, se- Bill's question is a great segue from the question I really want to ask, and it, it's not a unique question to the passing of Daniel Ellsberg, Professor Abi, but, when someone like Ellsberg dies, you use language of inspirational and moral courage. And I'm for those that don't have access to that kind of information, to do that kind of an historic, heroic act, what's the takeaway? What, what's the model that we could draw from a Daniel Ellsberg in our own lives, in our own views of our own responsibility, our own
1: citizenship? Well, Dan often said that uh, courage is contagious. I wish it was more contagious, but he, he really does believe that uh, people individually and collectively uh, uh, should raise fundamental questions about uh, the, uh, the unbelievable secrecy that uh, undergirds our national security state. Uh, the lack of transparency, the, the lack of accountability, the fact that we don't have anything approximating a democratic foreign policy that involves genuine consent of an informed public. Uh, Congress has really abdicated its responsibility, uh, hasn't declared a war since World War II. All these things have Greatly troubled him, and he's. Um, I think he's been a, a great inspiration to younger whistleblowers, who um, I think have been mistreated in the press and public. In the sense that uh, Ellsberg has always defended uh, uh, Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden as as heroic uh, truth tellers, uh, who were um, public interest whistleblowers revealing uh, secrets and wrongdoing that sh- that the public had a, a right and a need uh, to know. And yet uh, they have been prosecuted under. The the same espionage act that uh, he he was charged with and um, uh, not you know uh, Chelsea Manning wasn't given bail and allowed to go out on the uh, you know the trail giving speeches the way Ellsberg had and of course his case got thrown out because it was exposed that the go- the government the government- Nixon White House governmental had ba- misconduct had, had, had misconduct yeah they had the judge had no uh, recourse really um, so um, we have had uh, more cases. Um, under the Espionage Act in the 21st century than ever before. Um, and so uh, I just think that uh, w- one thing to keep in mind is that um, you know not only should we uh, offer our tributes to Ellsberg, but we should think uh, in a more open-minded way about ways in which individuals today uh, might blow the whistle on wrongdoing and be supported in their doing that. Let's conclude with your observations about
0: What Ellsberg did after he released the Pentagon Papers, because I think one reason that Ellsberg is so important is that he not only did something courageous with no guarantees of success, but after that, after facing the potential of decades in prison, and he was lucky to get out thanks to the overreaching of the government, uh, the government. uh, breaking into a psychiatrist's office, looking for papers so they could embarrass him. That, But for the government doing that, he might well have been convicted. But leaving that aside for a moment, he then continued this fight for the next half century. And I'd appreciate with a as a conclusion, your reflections on that part of his life, Professor?
1: Yeah, he's been tireless for, he was tireless for decades. Uh, I don't know that anybody has ever spoken at more colleges and universities around the country, uh, whatever the issue of the day happened to be, including at, at U, UMass. And as and, yeah, so you scenario. told us, one university gave him an honorary degree, one. Yeah, only the UMass, Uni- the U- University of Massachusetts, has uh, conferred on Ellsberg an honorary doctorate, which is really a scandal. It really shows something about the, the political timidity of higher education, uh, that they might be worried about honoring someone who, you know, some Americans would might still regard as a traitor rather than a hero. Um, so I was proud of UMass for doing that. But um, uh, yes, that's he right. Can... He's gone on, you know, he's he, as a... As a he, as I said, he's been involved in anti-nuclear activism, challenges to U.S. foreign policy in Central America and the greater Middle East and in 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 our own century. Uh, and right up to the end, uh, he was giving interviews about how we might better respond to the, the threats posed by the war in Ukraine and so forth. Daniel Ellsberg passed Friday,
0: I believe, the age of 92. Christian Oppie is the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass. Amherst is a professor of history and an expert and a leading author as well on the Vietnam War and the experience that America had in fighting that war. Professor, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for your remembrances and our condolences to you. I know this passing is very difficult for all who loved and respected Dan Ellsberg. Thank you both. You're listening
2: to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Pay raises for the mayor, city councilors, and school committee members will go into effect next year. The Northampton City Council voted to unanimously approve the recommendations from a report by the elected officials' compensation advisory board. Northampton Mayor Gina Luis will see the largest increase, with her annual salary bumped up $37,500. All pay increases will go into effect January second, twenty 2024. The whistleblower who exposed deceit about the Vietnam War and acts of retaliation by President Richard Nixon in leaked Pentagon Papers has died. Daniel Ellsberg's family announced his death on Friday at the age of 92. UMass Amherst opened an exhibit earlier this year on the life and work of Ellsberg after the university acquired a trove of archives from the economist and military analyst in 2019.
3: Different phases of his life will be organized in this inventory and that will allow people to dig deeper in the future.
7: The archive and corresponding exhibit is open to the public through September. Amherst is considering the installation of propane tanks at two proposed restaurants on Main Street. The planning board will meet Wednesday to discuss the authorization of 11 120-gallon propane tanks. There is currently a moratorium on natural gas extensions by Berkshire Gas and Amherst. The owner of the properties recently got approval from the design review board, but will need the okay from the planning board to move forward. If approved, the tanks would be located behind Town Hall at the edge of the municipal parking lot.
8: For today, we'll look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, chance for scattered afternoon showers and thunderstorms, highs 76 to 80. For tonight, chance for a shower thunderstorm this evening, otherwise mostly cloudy, overnight lows 54 to 58. And the look for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the mid 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 1015 WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
9: Yo soy Johan Rachel con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema ha conservado una ley federal que da preferencia a las familias nativas americanas cuando se trata de adoptar niños nativos en hogares de guarda. El fallo de la Corte de 7 a 2 el jueves deja en vigor la Ley de Bienestar de Niños Indígenas de 1978, que tiene como objetivo revertir siglos de esfuerzos aprobados por el gobierno para debilitar la identidad tribal al separar a los niños nativo americanos de sus familias y criarlos fuera de sus culturas tribales. La ley requiere que los estados notifiquen a las tribus cuando los casos de adopción involucren a sus miembros o niños elegibles para ser miembros de la tribu y que traten de ubicarlos con su familia extendida, su tribu u otras familias nativas americanas. Los líderes nativos americanos celebran el fallo como una gran victoria. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden instó el jueves al Congreso a aprobar una ley que brindaría un camino a la ciudadanía estadounidense para los jóvenes traídos al país ilegalmente cuando eran niños, utilizando una noche de cine en la Casa Blanca para subrayar su apoyo a los latinos. Biden y su esposa Jill presentaron Flaming Heart, una película dirigida por la actriz Eva Longoria en el Jardín Sur de la Casa Blanca para una multitud que incluía al elenco de la película, Líderes latinos y dreamers que no nacieron en los Estados Unidos pero llegaron al país cuando eran niños y lo conocen como su hogar. El martes, Biden organizó un concierto al aire libre para celebrar el 16 de junio, durante el cual denunció el racismo como una fuerza aún demasiado poderosa en el país. Los votantes negros y latinos son distritos electorales importantes para Biden, quien se postula para la reelección de 2024. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
7: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: For many years on the Nine O'Clock Show, we had a segment, sometimes once sometimes twice in one show with the Reverend Peter Ives and Rabbi Justin David, which became titled The Reverend and the Rabbi, yes. not surprisingly. And for, I think, close to a dozen years, we had some of the most inspiring, interesting, and informative parts of that show. As we became Talk the Talk and uh, Buzz and I merged our shows uh, the Reverend and the Rabbi has, for a number of reasons, really not having to do with the new show, but with uh, personal circumstances and changes in life, the Reverend and the Rabbi became a segment that we now call Have Faith. <laughs> 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 with, a, with an old rock and roll song about love, well, I'm a believer, goodness gracious, <laughs> of all things. But as Rabbi Justin David turns to a new chapter in his life, we thought it really important to commemorate the substantial and I think really important contribution that Reverend Peter Ives and Rabbi Justin David have made, not only with this show, but of course with regard to all of the other contributions they've made to our community for many, many years, two of the most substantial members of the community. And we wanted to spend a couple of segments today reflecting on the importance of the Reverend and the rabbi, particularly as we turn to uh, a new chapter in that aspect of the show. And we have with us uh, the Reverend Andrea Vazian, the Reverend Carol Bull. Andrea Vazian is one of the four uh, members of the clergy who who has become part of the new Reverend and the rabbi, uh, Andrea is part of the senior ministerial team at Alden Baptist Church in Springfield, and Carol Boyle is the Reverend at the United Church of Ware. We will also be joined by Ricky Kozowski, who is the Rabbi at Beit Ahava, and Michael McSherry. He is the fourth of the members of the ministry who are part of this new Reverend and the Rabbi, the Have Faith segment. Let me, since Michael McSherry, the Reverend Michael McSherry from Edwards Church, couldn't make it with us this morning, but he did want to be part of this celebration, and so he sent us a note that he would asked me to read, so let me read part of it. It's Michael, so it went on for some time, so I'm just going to read some of it. Uh, here it is. It says, here's what Reverend McSherry said. This feels like the passing of a mantle, like a generational transition. Only our ages aren't all that different, Laughter <laughs> These two preachers, teachers, the reverend and the rabbi, the rev and the rabbi, each welcomed me to the valley and to the community of religious leaders in different ways, and he went on to tell the stories about how you both welcomed him here. And after telling those stories, he writes this, The Reverend Peter Rives and this rabbi, Justin David, have shown all of us how to care for and cultivate a community, the specific religious community and the wider civil society in which it lives all with a view to the holy and the just, which inspires all our work. I am grateful for their example and for being invited into the work. Blessings on the next leg of your journeys, Peter and Justin. That from the Reverend Michael McSherry, so thank you so much. Let, let, me, let me ask, we're going to turn and hear from the Reverend and the rabbi themselves in just a moment, but let me ask you, Andrea Vazian, what are these two People mean to you? Reverend Peter Rives, Rabbi Justin David.
10: Oh, my goodness. What do these two giants, (laughs) colleagues, friends, beloved, beloved community members, Peter, who I have worked with and who has mentored me and in whose church I was ordained, Justin, who I have done countless interfaith projects and work with, we've prepared together for so many things, and then we have been together side by side. In so, so many things many you tragic. did together,
0: but one you didn't do together was get arrested. You got Except arrested separately, didn't you? I
10: prepared you? him for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, am I right, Justin? Justin came to my home and said, I'm preparing. Justin, help me with this. I'm, I remember you in my living room. Yep. Justin came to me and said, I'm preparing to be arrested. I have prayed on it. I have discerned that this is right. Right and I know you are a nonviolence civil disobedience trainer, and I need you to prepare me." And I said, how much time have you got? And you said, (laughs) all the time you need. And we sat there for hours. And I said, we talked about what it would be like, how you would prepare, how you would stay in your center, what it was like to be in jail, how you would stay in your center in jail. So no, I wasn't arrested with him that day, but I was part of that action. These two people are as dear in my heart as any friends I have. And as clergy colleagues, they are just shining lights. They are like the North Star for me. And we have done so many things over so many years together. I'm getting... What's the what's the Hebrew word? I'm getting for Clint. I'm getting for Clint. Okay, help me. Help me with all these good people. I'm getting for Clint. So I love I love these people. I love these. I love Peter. And and I love Justin. And Carol is here with us too, who I admire and love. So yes, these people mean the world to me.
11: Justin, you want to respond to that, or are you too foreclumped yourself? <laughs> oh, it's it's been a month of being foreclumped, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to say that, I mean, just to respond to that with great love and to uh, just um, so deeply appreciate that love coming from you, Andrea, and from you, Peter, and from you, Carol, and for all the time and the people and the projects that we've connected on. And... Um, You know, my my one thought is um, just to embrace as a community, as a society, the role of friendship. And I don't mean that in a casual way because, um, you know, community and bonds get filtered through all of the um, sort of externally imposed mechanisms that are there. And I think what friendship does, the, the true appreciation of one person to another on the most human level is make the deepest work possible. Uh, and that's what I've been thinking about since last night. And it's not anything they tell you in a, in any professional training program <laughs> or anything like that. It's always seen as the deeper value, but you know, you, you relate to the world and through whatever skills you've got or anything. But, but I really believe that, um, The element of friendship and deep caring is what propels everything.
0: While we have you, Rabbi Justin David, there was a a beautiful ceremony and just the most Mm -hmm. heartwarming spectacular uh, celebration of you last night at Congregation B'nai Israel. For those of our listeners who don't know, you're leaving your congregation, going on to a new adventure in life. Uh, Take a minute and tell our listeners what that is, please.
11: Well, I'm doing the only thing that could have ever taken me away from the congregation, which is I'm going to be the dean of a rabbinical school, uh, the dean of the uh, rabbinical school at Hebrew College in Boston, which is fairly new. It was set up about 20 years ago on a really sort of visionary foundation. It's become very popular, um, and it's become a very vibrant visionary place. And um, only taking on that position where I get to... Um, have a, an, an important role in shaping the experience of people who are going to be rabbis and go out there and lead communities and projects and develop new things. Um, it's only that opportunity that would have taken me from the community. Reverend Peter Ives,
0: you have been one of the most important members of this community for decades. And every time I go past the Sojourner Truth uh, Statue, statue in Florence, I think of you and the work you, you devoted and the work you have devoted to making this community more just and fair and equal. And I'm never going to get you to talk about you so, why don't you tell us about Justin David, because that...
12: <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you, Bill. Thank you, because I wanted to talk about Justin. I, I, uh, I know you didn't, and I'm never going to get you to talk
0: about you, so we'll get other no, people to do definitely.
12: that. Uh, Justin's so important to me, Bill. Um, Justin uh, was my choice when I retired from First Churches, and you approached me about a radio show, uh, Justin was my choice as the person I would have uh, I wanted to work with uh, as the rabbi uh, and so we started together and being with Justin and being with you Bill I have to say you Bill are one of my real heroes in this community because you made this all possible the whole revin the rabbi and gave us all the opportunity on the air to share Justin and I came in every, every Thursday to talk about our experiences together. And one of the things that was so wonderful for me about Justin was he could talk about Israel uh, and knew Israel because I had come back from Israel before I uh, came uh, here. I had come back from Israel and had hiked Israel myself. Uh, and had made a discovery in Israel on the uh, an archaeological dig that I was on, I made a discovery uh, with the Smithsonian Institute where I found in Israel a small piece of pottery that everyone on the archaeological dig ran over and said this is valuable, this Mm -hmm. is real valuable, um, this piece of pottery in Israel and it'll go to the Smithsonian Institute, and here I was, Peter Ives.
0: (laughs) (laughs) With your little shovel and your brush going, oh my
12: goodness. (laughs) (laughs) And and so Israel meant everything to me after I had been there, Uh, and I did just what Justin said he's going to do, hike across Israel, and I went all the way um, as far as I could go in Israel. And so, being with you, being with Justin, being able to talk about Israel, um, meant everything to me. Um, and, and that's the way we proceeded. And it was so wonderful, Bill, that you gave us this opportunity. I mean, we needed you. You were the center of making it possible. The Reverend the Rabbi could not have existed Without you, Bill.
0: <laughs> the Rev, the rabbi, and the uh, intellectually curious, difficult relationship with God, host of the show. Thank you. <laughs> 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 Thank you much. We're going to continue the celebration of the Reverend, and the rabbi will be joined by Rabbi Ricky Kozowski and the Reverend Carol Bull right after this.
2: <laughs> this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz
3: Eisenberg. This week's Shop Tuesday is Slancha. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Slauncha releases gift certificates for their restaurant in Holyoke. High up on Jarvis Avenue with a view of Holyoke and beyond, good food and drink, lunch and dinner daily. Plus, a private upstairs party room with a bar. They say it on the old sod and they say it in Holyoke. Slauncha, available this shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
6: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
13: 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future
8: for people and Planet.
13: Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone: 2 decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community.
1: PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road.
8: Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference.
1: Learn more at pvsquared.coop.
13: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman.
0: Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur.
13: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
0: We continue our celebration of the Reverend and the Rabbi, the Reverend Peter Ives and Rabbi Justin David. This will be, well, not our final show together, but certainly the conclusion of the Reverend and the Rabbi segment as we've known it for almost a dozen years here on the show. I would like to turn, if I might, to the Reverend Carol Bull, pastor at the United Church of Ware, for your reflections on Peter Ives and Justin David as they go to their next adventures in life.
13: Oh my goodness, I'm in some ways I'm speechless, um, uh, uh, but I want to say, you know, You all are my mentors as well in various ways, and I stand on your shoulders in doing whatever I do. I wish you great joy and. And those, those younger people are going to give you a run for their money, and that's their job. <laughs> and um, Peter, you know, I pray for you and Andrea all, every day and your families, and you are, this, you are both the shoulders that I have stood on to do what I've been able to do with your love and blessings and open hearts. And a friend of mine and I were talking about Peter one day, and she said, the thing about Peter is his presence is so powerful that he— you think you're the only one in the world and that he loves you the best. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: so
10: that's, your, that's your legacy.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth truth to that. Mm-hmm. I, I'd like to turn to uh, Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, uh, and for those of our listeners who are wondering why these four uh, members of the Cordier are with us, because they are going to continue— the Reverend and the Rabbi. We have a new title and new for the segment, but we want to continue these conversations with our uh, religious leaders in the community, which I think are so important and I think are really informative and often inspirational. Uh, rabbi Ricky, your thoughts?
4: Hi, um, I'm I'm just so also floored and in awe of these incredible uh, leaders. So I want to congratulate my dear friend Rabbi Justin David on this just. Incredible tenure and legacy and mark that he has led, and also my friend, rabbi, Reverend Rabbi Rabbi Peter
0: Rabbi Peter Osh. I like being a rabbi. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, the exactly Union Theological too. Seminary and, and, and the Hebrew Theological Seminary—really, they're across the street from each other. Well, you know, that's right. You, you know. take a, a small walk.
12: That's right. That's
4: right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is really true. I have such a beautiful memory of sometimes on Rosh Hashanah, uh, Peter coming to our Tashlich services. He comes down the path on the river and we have this beautiful Rosh Hashanah uh, celebration and we're throwing bread cups into the river and there's Peter and he blew shofar and he joins the Jewish community. He's just one with us. So I I am just indebted to both of them for their friendship. And actually um, the, the blessing that I wanted to give um, is is from Pirkei Avot which is the sayings of the ancestors it comes from the Talmud and I just want to read this in honor of these wonderful people um it's this wonderful litany of uh wonderful rabbis giving their giving over their most profound teachings and they can all do it in a sentence so that's it that's a challenge for all of us as clergy to be able to do that and this one is in um chapter one verse six uh joshua ben Parachiah used to say, I'm going to say it in Hebrew and then in English, You should appoint for yourself a teacher, a rabbi, uh, a reverend, a minister, a friend, and inquire for yourself a companion, uh, a, a soul friend, and you should judge all of humanity uh, in, in, on the scale of in their favor. And that really is just, to me, defines Justin. And I think of just the incredible friendship that he has given to all of us. And uh, beyond being our teacher and our rabbi, uh, through that, he has just become a true soul friend and he has the ability to uh, just see the beauty and lift up the joy and and really help us find our true soul's calling. And I'm just incredibly grateful to him for that and, and for all he has done for the whole community.
0: Thank you, Rabbi Rick. I really
6: appreciate that. Bill, I, I think that the Pope and the Dalai Lama want to chime in as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> unfortunately, our Skype connection with the Dalai Lama did, uh, is, is problematic. We have about a minute left. Uh, He's for Clemson. <laughs> how, how about a half a minute from you, if you would, please. Peter Ives, f- a final thought.
12: Um, there's a prayer in Israel that I heard, Um When I was there, the old ancient prayer, and I thought it was just in Israel, but it's the prayer that I say in first churches every time I'm there. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face smile upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord's countenance be lifted up upon you and give you peace. And that prayer goes way back to the beginnings of Israel.
11: All I can say to that is amen, with great love and friendship to you, Peter, and to Andrea, and to Carol, and to Bill, and Ricky, and Michael, and um, this whole community. You've been listening to the Reverend and the Rabbi. Thank you all so
0: very much. Peter, Justin, I love you guys. You are an inspiration to me, and I am forever in your debt.
2: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP.
3: You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost.
7: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at or call me at 586-7400.
3: WHMP news, information, and the arts, and messages from community nonprofits. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings for more. WHMP Northampton and W R S I
2: H D Two, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station.
4: It's 10
13: o'clock.
2: This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com.
13: I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. Parts of the South are caught up in a punishing heat wave. And then there's the rain. Here's Stephanie Abrams at the Weather Channel. Through
14: a big chunk of the week, we'll have rounds of rain and also a lot of rain in a short amount of time. Therefore, we could see some flooding. The heaviest totals will stretch anywhere from Virginia
13: all the way down to the Gulf Coast. Swiss voters have thrown their support behind a tough new climate bill. It's rapidly melting glaciers were testimony enough. Just over 59 percent of Swiss voters have backed a new bill designed to help their country reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Switzerland currently imports about three quarters of its energy. The new law requires a move away from dependence on imported oil and gas towards the use of renewable energy. CBS's Vicki Barker. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has met with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing. CBS's Margaret Brennan is traveling with the secretary. There
15: was an agreement to try to restart direct flights between the two countries, to try to boost student exchange programs, and
13: there'll be more meetings. Relations between the U.S. and China have been strained in recent months. A gun battle between the Israeli military and Palestinians has killed five and injured over 60. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights decries this latest encounter.
9: In the occupied West Bank, excessive use of force and unlawful killings of Palestinians by the Israeli security forces have increased.
13: A judge has ordered stiff rules for the handling of evidence in the first ever federal prosecution of a former
1: U.S. president. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart in Florida has issued a series of restrictions on the handling of the evidence provided by the Justice Department to Donald Trump's defense team. Under the judge's order, Donald Trump may not retain copies of materials provided to his lawyers and can only review the case materials under the direct supervision of his lawyers or a member of his lawyer's staff.
13: That's CBS's Scott McFarland. Purging of the Medicaid rolls is picking up speed. CBS's Jim Crisula has the story.
8: Well over a million Medicaid recipients have been removed from the program as states start enforcing
2: eligibility rules for the first time since the COVID-19 pandemic. It's cruel and it's arbitrary. Max Cotterill is with the group National Nurses United.
8: It's crazy that we spend
11: so much money trying to figure out who is eligible to try to save money because it just paradoxically ends up adding tons of administrative costs.
13: Today is Juneteenth, a time to reflect on the end of slavery in the U.S. and the treatment of black Americans today.
11: It was very much a activist spirit to celebrate the struggles of African Americans and the continued issues that we faced.
13: This is CBS News.
2: Hiring is a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com
3: credit. Ray Maliazzi here for eBay Motors. Okay, easy now. You're teaching your kid how to parallel park. Ouch! (laughs) Turns out he likes to do it by feel. Don't worry, eBay Motors has bumpers, trunk lids, license plate holders, and headlights. (laughs) They've got lots of headlights. When you need parts, get it right the first time with eBay Guaranteed Fit. When you see the check, you know that part's gonna fit. eBay Motors, let's ride. Eligible items only.
2: Exclusions apply.
6: This episode of Ion Travel is brought to you by Viking, providing all inclusive voyages on rivers, oceans, and lakes around the world. Designed for curious travelers with interest in science, history, culture, and cuisine. Viking Chairman Torsten Hagen often says Viking offers
1: experiences for the thinking person, with no children and no casinos on board. Learn more at Viking.com. That's Viking.com.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Pay raises for the mayor, city councilors, and school committee members will go into effect next year. The Northampton City Council voted to unanimously approve the recommendations from a report by the elected officials' compensation advisory board. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise will see the largest increase, with her annual salary bumped up $37,500. All pay increases will go into effect January 2nd, 2024. The whistleblower who exposed deceit about the Vietnam War and acts of retaliation by President Richard Nixon in leaked Pentagon Papers has died. Daniel Ellsberg's family announced his death on Friday at the age of 92. UMass Amherst opened an exhibit earlier this year on the life and work of Ellsberg after the university acquired a trove of archives from the economist and military analyst in 2019.
3: Different phases of his life will be organized in this inventory and that will allow people to dig deeper in the future.
7: The archive and corresponding exhibit is open to the public through September. Amherst is considering the installation of propane tanks at two proposed restaurants on Main Street. The planning board will meet Wednesday to discuss the authorization of 11 120-gallon propane tanks. There is currently a moratorium on natural gas extensions by Berkshire Gas and Amherst. The owner of the properties recently got approval from the design review board, but will need the okay from the planning board to move forward. If approved, the tanks would be located behind town hall at the edge of the municipal parking lot.
8: For today, we'll look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds. Chance for scattered afternoon showers and thunderstorms. Highs 76 to 80. For tonight, chance for a shower thunderstorm this evening. Otherwise, mostly cloudy. Overnight lows 54 to 58. And the outlook for Tuesday: partly sunny. Chance for afternoon showers. Highs in the mid 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
2: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
0: on WHMP. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And we have with us today attorney John Pucci. John has a regular segment with us Crime and Punishment. And we have been talking for months now about Donald Trump and his legal uh, travails. And I am so pleased we could have John back with us today because I want to learn more about the Classified Information Procedures Act. Now, wait, don't, 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 don't glaze over. Don't let your eyes glaze over. This actually is a law that is going to have enormous influence on the trial of Donald Trump and will have an enormous influence on what happens to Trump and how the American legal system is perceived going forward after that trial. So, John Pucci, help us understand this, the Classified Information Procedures Act. Most people, I think, have never heard of it and certainly hadn't heard of it until Donald Trump was indicted. Teach us.
16: talking about the mar-a-lago search case i mean you have to kind of focus in on one of the cases and we're today we're at the moment we're talking about the mar-a-lago search case in which the special counsel appointed by garland named jack smith uh, went to a grand jury and got an indictment recently of donald trump and his sidekick willie uh, and a guy named nalt um for uh, various violations uh conspiracy the two of them, to violate the Espionage Act, uh, violations of uh, classified publication of classified documents, statutes. And the fact is that all of these violations involve 30, approximately 31 classified documents.
0: Thirty-five, 31 different pieces of paper. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
16: Yes. 31 pieces of, we can call it pieces of paper. They may be emails they may be other things i'm not sure exactly what they are and part of the reason i don't know exactly what they why they what they are is they're classified and so they're not open to the public to review so the <clears throat> indictment identifies some of the documents um, but when classified documents are involved in a case it triggers review and and an and examination and process under what's called the Classified Information Procedures Act uh, known in the business as CIPA okay an acronym acronym for Classified Information Procedures Act it's a federal statute it was created pretty recently actually about 20 years ago and it directly applies uh, when classified documents are in issue meaning that they may be brought forth in a trial and somebody may want to publish a classified document.
0: When you say pub, when you say published, you mean show it to the jury and therefore show it to the uh, people in the audience who are watching the, the, the uh, proceedings, what are we talking about?
12: So
16: in the normal course, all exhibits at a trial, whether they're emails or texts or documents, Normally, they get marked and they get put in the public docket and they can be examined by the press and examined by um, the uh, uh, public through the press. You can go to the courthouse and you can look at them. They're public record, open public record. But that's not the case with classified documents. The very definition of classified documents is a document that the government has determined needs to be kept secret hence classified, in order to protect the information therein, and that the public interest is served by keeping these documents uh, uh, private, in the hands of the government only, and not available for public inspection by citizens, but more likely not available for public inspection by foreign par- powers, spies, etc., that might make use of it because it would damage the, the national interest. So. This act comes into play, and it starts by <clears throat> having the government make what's called discovery. We've talked about discovery before, but discovery is a term of art in the criminal practice world in which the government makes available to the defense the evidence which it intends to present at trial. That is transcripts of grand jury transcripts of witnesses, interview memoranda of witnesses, documents um, that it plans to introduce into evidence. So normally, that that process is generally available to the public. You can send um, you can send uh, copies of documents and transcripts to defense counsel. Defense counsel, generally speaking, can make them public if anyone's really interested. Defense counsel can publish them in their own pleadings to the court if they make motions before the trial or during the trial. And all of that is above board in the sense of being open to the public. But if it's classified documents, the first thing that has to happen is that the defense counsel, in order to see the classified documents, has to get a security clearance. So, you know, defense counsel generally don't have security clearances. I've been a defense counsel for decades. I don't have a security clearance. Uh, and so you have to go through, the defense counsel has to go through a process of getting uh, a security clearance, a top secret security clearance.
0: Let's stop there for That's one second. S- let's stop there for one second because Buzz Eisenberg, as a attorney for Guantanamo detainees, in fact, had to get a security clearance. So let's ask him what'd you have to go through, Buzz? Uh, it, it took about uh, five or six
6: weeks. The FBI talking to twelve of my neighbors and, and uh, my employer, and you have to sign uh, releases for your medical, psychiatric, uh, quarry, That is criminal information. It's a pretty thorough process, and when you have it, um, you you get it, uh, it. It targets various levels of classification. So for the tippy-top secret, uh, you have to get an even greater security clearance than what most of us got. And all the documents you look at are kept in a secure facility called the SCIF as an acronym, uh, where uh, you have to gain admission because you have to prove that you're allowed to get in there, and then they're kept in a very secret kind of way. And the courts, there's a litigation security office that makes sure that the courts close when we're going to be talking about classified documents. It's a pretty big deal. Okay.
16: Right. And and as defense counsel, you don't get to copy the documents. You don't get to put them in your laptop. You have to go to this secure space, often in a federal courthouse, um, and review them there. And so you really are under it's it's a totally different process than the discovery process that we're used to as defense counsel in your typical case.
0: Well, John, let me ask you this. a significant element of the crimes, or thirty one of the crimes uh, that Trump is charged with, is uh, or involves these documents being classified and not having been declassified, They're, and uh, and possessing them improperly. Uh, isn't the jury in effect being instructed that Trump is guilty? If, but just by the way, the documents are being treated. And by the way, at the end of the day, how will they be treated? Will the jury see them? Will they be declassified before trial? What do you expect to happen?
16: Okay. So the first question is how will they be handled at a trial? Yes. A question. <laughs> is how will they be handled at a trial? And there's a process by, well, let me back up before we get to the trial. So we're into the discovery phase in which as as has been set forth, the defense counsel needs security clearance. If Trump changes defense counsel, which he often does, that new lawyer needs security clearance. The discovery process is awkward. It has to take place in a secret location monitored by the government, you can't copy it, take it home, read it in your office. You can't even read it in your office. And so and, and so there can be disputes about what is classified and what is not classified. Um, and and the, the defense counsel can see documents and insist they're not classified. They're open to public review and they can use them. There can be disputes about what's classified, what's not classified. All of that has to bounce back to the judge who's assigned to the case, and the judge in this case is the one and only Aileen Cannon, who demonstrated her allegiance to Trump when the original search warrant was issued, not by her, but by a, a, a magistrate, but which she then created a whole mythology about how the case should be handled. The, the, the Circuit Court of Appeals in the 11th Circuit, a panel of three, including two Trump appointees, blew out her opinions completely destroyed her analysis. We're back with Judge Cannon. She's gonna be the one that's gonna monitor and implement the CIPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act with regards to the classified documents that are gonna to have to be placed in evidence in this instance. And if she makes a mistake, and if a party disagrees with her, the government, not the defense, the government has the right to an interlocutory appeal before the trial. So be, by the time discoveries ended, or while it's 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 boiling up, she makes she's called in, makes some rulings. The government can appeal that to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and if they lose there, can appeal it to the Supreme Court. So this is rife. This process is rife with the opportunity for significant delays. I just That's want to really point a big part of it.
6: I just want to sort of supplement what you're saying, John Pucci which is the way that it worked in in, uh, the Guantanamo litigations is before each litigation, there's what's called a protective order. The judge, each lawyer says, this is the way we should handle this discovery or these uh, exhibits, and the judge issues a protective order and admonishes the lawyers to uh, make motions if they disagree with anything as the process goes on. So it, it usually requires a pretty seasoned judge to be able to do this. This judge, I think, has had something like you know, 14 days of trial before her, uh, cumulatively since she became a judge. She does not have the kind of experience that customarily goes along with that kind of sophisticated litigation.
16: Yeah, so if you put aside the, the indications of bias that she's already exhibited for Trump and you mix in the inexperience, she's also a younger person, she's 41 or 42 years old, not that I can remember what it was like at that age, but I know I was a lot less experienced than I was ten years later.
0: Yeah, and we should and point fact, out she's not a she wasn't a trial lawyer. She didn't try cases.
16: Right. She was an assistant U.S. attorney. She's a sophisticated had a has a sophisticated uh, pedigree education. I think when she went to Duke Law School, which is a really fine law school, she's not, as they say stupid by any means. But, you know, that's really not what she has exhibited. She's exhibited a bias in the prior proceedings, which the Third uh, Eleventh Circuit destroyed publicly and rebuked her about uh, because they were so wrong and they were so pro-Trump, pro-defendant in this case. So we're back with Judge Cannon. You're going to be reading about it. A lot of it will be in what's called in-camera, which is a term of art for meaning under seal and like grand jury proceedings we're going to be at a piece where you're going to be reading in the new york times or the wall street journal or wherever you get your news about proceedings that you're not really going to publicly be able to get access to until they're resolved and even then they'll remain under seal and there'll be a lot of secrecy around the proceedings with regards to how to handle the use of the 31 classified documents in the jury trial
0: do you think the government could declassify those documents between now and the trial so that, well, the government could avoid all of this delay and obfuscation and problems at the trial?
12: Well,
16: prior to the the creation of, of CIPA, the Classified Information Procedures Act, there was a process, the reason the act came into play was that there were criminal cases brought forward in which the defense attempted to to get all these records declassified and went the route you're suggesting and the government actually dismissed some cases rather than fight about and lose the classification of those documents so there's a history to this the the classified information procedures act was supposed to address it it does address it but it's a very ornate process it's a secret Process it's slow, and it would be turned on its head if Trump fires this lawyer and hires another lawyer, and they have to start all over again. And frankly, with his record of hiring and firing lawyers, that could happen in a you know in a heartbeat.
6: And I just want to add one other thing: in the Guantanamo litigation, there was a uh, sort of a boilerplate motion. The, the government always asked us to stipulate to the classification status of documents, and. Sometimes we would, but sometimes it was in our client's interest to refuse to do that, so we'd have to have a complex argument, a motion hearing. The courtroom got sealed. Different computers are used by the court's uh, reporters. Um, Different sound system to handle classified information. I don't know whether all of that exists in Florida to the extent to which it did in D.C., but that's a complicated process.
0: Yeah, and I'd I'd ask you both. Doesn't the judge have to receive security clearance, too?
16: Yes. Yes.
0: Well, that may take a few moments. Listen, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Crime and Punishment. We're talking about Donald Trump and the Classified Information Procedures Act and the Mar-a-Lago documents. We'll continue right after this.
2: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local
3: news and local talk for The Valley.
4: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
2: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Come on over.
10: To the co op, the Greenfield
3: Cooperative Bank. At Greenfield Cooperative Bank, it pays to get pre approved. If you're looking to buy a home, right now is the perfect time to save up to $1,250 on your mortgage closing costs. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local experienced mortgage team is happy to walk you through the process so you can get in your new home as quickly and as easily as possible. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by September 30th via new first-time mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF.
8: Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? you have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., or visit safepass.org today.
2: To Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
0: We continue our conversation with John Pucci. John is a criminal defense attorney, uh, a partner at Buckley Richardson and Joinus, and a former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts. During the break, we were talking about, our conversation went on, and we got to the topic of Whether or not Jack Smith wanted to bring this indictment at all, which I think uh, brings up the recent editorial in the Wall Street Journal, which said, hey, they shouldn't have brought this indictment. They should have issued a report and let everyone know what Trump did, brought the documents back, made sure they were secure, made sure there had not been some uh, leak that was of significance to the United States uh, national security and called it a day. That's what should have been done. The indictments should never have been brought. And you had some thoughts about that, John Pucci, so share.
16: Well, one thing uh, for sure is that there's no way to ever know whether Trump has additional documents hidden away somewhere. I mean, the guy is so totally untrustworthy with regards to, you know, these records in the, in the, class of the classified records. You have no, we have no idea. I don't think Jack Smith, I don't think the FBI has any real idea of whether or not there are additional documents beyond which were seized from the 38 documents or 31 documents beyond which were, which were seized at the locations that were searched when there are other documents that other locations that Trump still has. So if you're his lawyer You need to know the answer to that if you want to go in. I mean, one of the things that the Times, the New York Times exposed was that in January this year, there were certain elements of his defense team that wanted to go to Jack Smith and say, here's all the documents. Um, We want to persuade you not to charge and just call it a day, whatever you do with the insurrection investigation is your business, but let's just walk away from this mess. And here's all the documents, or we assure you you have all the documents and Trump would not authorize his lawyers to go in and make that pitch. Now, that's insane. It's insane not to allow your lawyers to go in and say, here's, you know, we've either given you everything or here's additional records we have. He won't even authorize the conversation. It literally, I think, forces Smith's hand. And as we sit here today and talk about it, nobody can be assured that Donald Trump does not have additional confidential, explosive, classified materials, which he may later try to use as leverage against a prosecution or or may may expose, may publicly expose it.
0: Well, while we're talking about New York Times reporting, let's turn to the the, the, the article that says, or has as a headline, what's not included in the indictment. And what's not included in the indictment, among other things, is any statement about motivation why Trump would want to have these documents, what he was going to use them for, what was the purpose in them being at Mar-a-Lago. And I think that's a big question. And I think it's a question the jury might have, which is, isn't there some mental element to all of this? And if it was just, well, you know, he kept them for a souvenir or he initially brought them by mistake and he didn't want to give him back because he thinks the government's overreaching or they're targeting him or they're treating him unfairly compared to Hillary or compared to uh, Biden or compared to Pence or compared to anybody else and they're targeting him. And there's no evidence so far that I'm aware of with regard to Trump's motivation. Does that make any difference, John Pucci?
16: What makes a difference is whether he – what what he did, he, he – and this – proof you can prove that he intended to do it that he had knowledge of that they were classified he had knowledge he shouldn't have possessed them and he intended to continue that possession even if they were after they were requested by the government so that's the legal the the legal issue did he have knowledge of it did he intend to do what is alleged what you're really scratching at is you know What's in the mind of a narcissistic psychopath? That <laughs>
0: well, that's one way to put it, yeah.
16: And I, and I don't have the expertise to, to really say that. I'm, I have very limited insights into narcissistic psychopaths. I, they're not that common, and, and they generally don't get to the White House. But that's really, so why did he do it? Well, you know... Why why did the Unabomber do what he did? I don't know. These, you know, this insane, insane things done that beg explanation and and frankly don't have good ones. I take one of them.
0: But I take it from what you're saying is that the mental element of this crime is knowledge of the classified documents, that is their status as being classified and possession. But his motivation is actually not an element of the crime. Do I do I correct. hear hear you correctly? Yeah,
16: that's correct.
6: Right, unless he he raises a, a lack of criminal responsibility because he's insane defense, but John, are, are, do you think as somebody who's worked in the justice department and as a defense attorney, do you think which which case do you think is the one more likely to result in conviction, that he had classified data that documents that he didn't have a right to or his obstruction? His his Take great steps to keep the FBI and the Justice Department from being able to get back these documents, which is which is the more important case, you think?
16: Well, I think they're so inextricably intertwined, it's almost impossible to separate them because the obstruction has to do with the the classified documents and the possession of the classified documents is the core of what he was obstructing on. So I don't think I can separate those two out um, in an, in an, into neat boxes that are separate from each other. They're all alleged together. Um, and I think it's going to be all or nothing uh, in, in front of a jury. Frankly, I have yet to hear you know, any defense to the to the charges here apparently the tapes acknowledge he acknowledges there were secret on the tapes he acknowledged he could no longer declassify records you know Bill Barr appeared on on meet the press over the weekend and gave a lengthy statement about it in what hit and I'm quoting now what he said was Trump's defense in the documents case he said was absurd and wacky now, this is a guy who was his own attorney general who was a who has said if Trump gets nominated, he'll vote for him again. And he is completely scornful of any 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 defense to the case as far as he's as far as he knows. He said that Donald Trump acted like a quote nine year old kid and can and and you know, this is it. I mean, the guy is really off his rocker, and what you're trying to figure out is you're applying. You know your own sense of reality to somebody that doesn't share that and bill barr who knows him very well who doesn't go out on a limb to attack you know republican power figures thinks there's no defense to the case and what's been asserted is absurd and wacky and that's a pretty that's pretty you know that speaks for itself
0: Could you spend a minute or two with us, John, about one other aspect of this case that's going to involve what we call motion practice, that is, a motion is just a piece of paper asking a court to do something or take some action or make a ruling, and that is about the attorney-client privilege that's involved here. Because a fair amount of this case depends on things that Trump told his lawyers, and the government says yes that normally would be privileged but there's a crime fraud exception to the attorney client privilege and that applies here because trump and his lawyers were getting together to try to further a criminal a criminal enterprise but a client a criminal client is fully entitled to ask his lawyer or their lawyer what about this what about that can we do this what about this what happened would, would happen if we do that all uh, why shouldn't we do this i want to do this and all of that is privilege. so why is so will those conversations and whether or not those conversations can be introduced into evidence is that going to become a significant part of this litigation
16: well it's already been a significant part because in many of the with for many of those lawyers it's been fully litigated uh, in the district courts in the grand jury process where the the lawyers asserted attorney-client privilege so so there, there is a privilege that applies okay when a when a client talks to his lawyer there's a, and an advisor in back and forth that is privileged the government wants to get at that information they have to subpoena the lawyer, the, 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 the lawyer goes to the client. The client says, I want you to assert the privilege. So Trump tells, for instance, a big witness in this is a lawyer named Evan Cochran. He tells Cochran, I want you to assert the privilege, attorney-client privilege as to my conversations with you. The government then goes in the grand jury secrecy of a grand jury process into sealed, sealed filings and proceedings before a district court judge in this case, with regards to Cochran in DC, and they allege we have sufficient information that the conversations that took place were pursuant to a criminal endeavor. They were part of a criminal conspiracy, part of a criminal venture, and as such, they're not entitled to protection from the attorney-client privilege. And the judge has to make that ruling, and once he makes that ruling, he can say, I don't agree, I don't see that they're." Pursuant to a criminal venture, the government cannot get the, the conversations or evidence or put the the lawyer in the grand jury. Or the gov the lawyer can the judge can go a different way and say yes, there are these conversations and these communications, written and oral, were pursuant to a, 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 a criminal venture, and therefore they're not entitled to protection under attorney-client privilege. And therefore, both the witness and the witness's documents have to be produced to the grand jury. That's actually happened already twice that we know about. That's a great in insight, John Pucci. Investigations.
6: So if people are that's still still confused, just one little, if somebody says, yes, I" to their lawyer, yes, I murdered that person, that, uh, that privilege, that confidence has to be preserved by the lawyer. If somebody says, I want to murder somebody tomorrow, that's a different thing, and we have to narc that person out. It's that simple. So.
16: Or the person says, Donald Trump says to Cochran, it's more complicated with Cochrane, let's put him aside for the moment, but if the conversation is part of a crime, so, so tr- if Trump says to Cochran, I don't want you to produce all these documents, I know that they're, you know, you're telling me I have to produce them, I'm instructing you not to produce them, and a judge finds that that instruction and Cochrane's following it was part of an obstruction of justice in violation of federal law, then the the attorney-client privilege gets waived and the documents and the testimony from the lawyer get introduced into evidence. That's a great explanation. And that's happened already twice in this case because the Judge Carter in California, with regards to the January 6th investigation, determined that certain information that came from lawyers uh, constituted, uh, was part of, Trump's attempt to obstruct an official proceeding by launching a pressure campaign to convince Pence, Vice President Pence, to disrupt the joint session taking the electoral college votes on January 6th. So a judge in California, with regards to the January 6th investigation, determined that the lawyer who gave him that advice was a guy named John Eastman, has to testify in the grand jury. And it's happened in the Mar-a-Lago case too, Where the judge decided that that Cochran, who was Trump's attorney, as to Mar-a-Lago documents, had to testify in the grand jury for the same reasons that the government had proven by a preponderance of evidence that there were that the conversations were part of a criminal conspiracy.
6: We're so lucky to have John Pucci. I'm sure we're going to be talking to him a lot in the coming months as uh, this case winds its way through the court. John, thank you so much for joining us.
16: Happy to have you, and I and I did fight the law, and I can say most times the law won.
2: <laughs> You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Pay raises for the mayor, city councilors, and school committee members will go into effect next year. The Northampton City Council voted to unanimously approve the recommendations from a report by the elected officials' compensation advisory board. Northampton Mayor Gina Louis will see the largest increase, with her annual salary bumped up $37,500. All pay increases will go into effect January 2, 2024. The whistleblower who exposed deceit about the Vietnam War and acts of retaliation by President Richard Nixon in leaked Pentagon Papers has died. Daniel Ellsberg's family announced his death on Friday at the age of 92. UMass Amherst opened an exhibit earlier this year on the life and work of Ellsberg, after the university acquired a trove of archives from the economist and military analyst in 2019.
3: Different phases of his life will be organized in this inventory and that will allow people to dig deeper in the future.
7: The archive and corresponding exhibit is open to the public through September. Amherst is considering the installation of propane tanks at two proposed restaurants on Main Street. The planning board will meet Wednesday to discuss the authorization of 11 120-gallon propane tanks. There is currently a moratorium on natural gas extensions by Berkshire Gas and Amherst. The owner of the properties recently got approval from the design review board, but will need the okay from the planning board to move forward. If approved, the tanks would be located behind Town Hall at the edge of the municipal parking lot.
8: For today we'll look for a mixture of sunshine and clouds, chance for scattered afternoon showers and thunderstorms, highs 76 to 80. For tonight chance for a shower or thunderstorm this evening, otherwise mostly cloudy, overnight lows 54 to 58, and the outlook for Tuesday partly sunny, chance for afternoon showers, highs in the mid 70s. I'm 22 news storm team meteorologist Adam Stremko on 1015 WHMP.
7: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
8: It's your
2: home for the resistance. Tom Hartman weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to three, right here on WHMP. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. WHMP.
3: The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit GazetteNet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786
13: Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst.
5: WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
6: And this is that fortunate time of the week where we go to writer's block with Megan Zinn, who dives, deep dives into the world of readers and writers and publishers and distributors, and what do we have today, Megan? Well,
15: today we're just talking about reading. It's a session of What You Readin' with my friend Kate Hudson. Um, And Kate is not the daughter of Goldie Hawn, as I like to say, um, and um, a faculty member at UMass Amherst in the UMass Amherst College of Education, and she's also the secretary of the faculty union, so working to keep them... Honest, um, and, and is also a voracious reader, and when I first To moved... keep
6: the university honest. Yeah, that's what I meant, yes. yes.
15: Not the union, the save, save from neoliberalism. Save the university from neoliberalism, exactly. Um, and when I first moved to this area, I was in a book club with Kate, um, and then she went off and got a PhD, so she couldn't spend as much time chatting about books with us, but she can today. Um, and so, Kate, um, welcome.
14: Thanks, I'm so delighted to be here.
15: And um, just to start, what do you like to read in general?
14: That's a really long answer, so when you when we first started talking about doing this, I came up with about ten different categories, yeah. and I narrowed it down to a couple. <laughs> so I thought today I'd talk a little bit about some of the um, some of the books that I wish more people knew yeah, about yeah, please um, and they tend to be in the sort of historical fantasy realm Love that. Um, I always like talking about I read uh, non-stop as a kid, so mm-hmm. I might talk a little bit about oh, yes. that. Yep. And then also, um, when I travel, I really like to read books that are mm-hmm. related to my travel. Very so cool. I sort of narrowed it down to those yep. three. That, there could be 10 more categories. Good.
15: And I know you've traveled recently, so we'll talk about that. But so t- tell us about the, some of the historical fantasy. Uh, the historical. F- it, yeah,
14: fantasy. Yep. yeah. So it's, it's a couple different things. So a lot of folks I know like reading science fiction. And for some reason, I've never quite gotten mm-hmm. into science fiction. But this historical fantasy is kind of a similar thing so it tends to be history plus magic or magical realism or rethinking of historical yeah, speculative things history speculative history um, and so that for me fills some of the same I think some of the same n- holes that science fiction does mm-hmm. um, so I'm going to talk about one of my favorite authors of all time whose name is guy Gabriel Kay mm-hmm. he's from uh, Canada. And he originally came to fame because he was a friend of the Tolkien family. Oh, and happy. when uh, J.R. Tolkien died and left the Cimmerillion, Cimmerillion Unwritten, um, his son Christopher hired this guy <gasps> to help okay. him finish that uh-huh. back when he was like a grad student. Wow. Um, but, he, but he's written probably 15 books now mm-hmm. um, that are all based on mostly... Um, uh, well, hi- different different historical eras. Um, and uh, I, I'm just going to highlight a couple. Um, one is based on the Albigensian crusade in medieval Provence, okay. and it's called A Song for Arbonne. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really talks, there's a lot of the, the whole uh, troubadours and that okay. sort of thing, yeah. but then there's also... Um, the, the real sort of anti-women kind of crusade that came through, um, and kind of these interactions and that sort of thing. He writes really strong women characters. Oh, um, and this one came out in 92. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, his his focus on on strong women yeah. um, was really a little bit unusual a, at, yeah, at that time. time. Yeah, cool. My favorite that he wrote is called The Lions of Al-Rasen, which came out in 95. And it's set in an analog of medieval Spain. Um, And the thing that's really interesting is that he has that interaction between Jews, Muslims and Christians, although it's all that he doesn't call them that. But it's Ah, it's 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 all. But they're they're similar. It's a similar sort of thing. And uh, that that one, again, I just um, looks. That one is just one of my favorites in terms of characters um, and that sort of thing.
15: Yeah. One of the things I love about historical fantasy is that one of the things I don't love about fantasy is I don't have the patience for world building. Unlike fantasy lovers love the world building. And so that's one of the great things about historical fantasy is it's usually set. You know the world fairly well. They don't have to do a lot of world building. You don't have Mm -hmm. to learn a whole new world before you can. D- dive into the story so that's those sound really cool so exactly on. and I
14: think that makes it richer too because yes. it's less likely that you're going to get a sort of sort of half-baked, uh, <laughs> half-baked
13: world
15: building,
14: world building yes. um, which I think happens a lot and then there, his re- most recent three um, are looking at uh, uh, the Italy Istanbul and the Balkans in the 15th century and those that's are also cool. really cool yeah um
15: Nice. And so, and um, you so you you did as um, you, you said you love to read um, books about the area that you're traveling to. And tell us, you did some traveling and some literary traveling very recently.
14: Yes, I just got back. My 87 year old mom and I traveled to um, Bath and Devon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we got back two weeks ago. Um, and so I always try to do reading. So Bath was wonderful because, of course, I'm a huge Jane Austen yeah. fan, and I reread most of Jane Austen and every year. Yes. Um, and we took a walking tour and we were able to really see. So when in Persuasion, for example, the Musgrove sisters tell their dad that uh, they can't possibly live on Queen Square because that that's sort of old fashioned and no longer exciting, um, we were able to be in Queen Square and then look mm-hmm. at some of the other things. And,
15: and see how in, in or out of fashion it, it is. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and were there any other books that you were kind of pursuing? Yeah, so like the other two
14: were, were Devon mo- books, and one of them was Agatha Christie, uh, which was, um, and then There Were None, mm-hmm. which takes place on an island offside of Devon. Um, and then another uh, mystery series that's written by Anne Cleves. A lot of people know the Shetland or the Vera mm-hmm. um, uh, groups, but this is a new um, Matthew Venn. So it takes place in Devon also, and it's also Very lovely. Cool. Very cool.
15: Um, so I think it's um, we're heading into an ad break, and we'll come back with Kate Hudson, I guess Kate Hudson, to talk more about what we're reading.
6: Historical this fantasy. This is Talk the
2: Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg at the black sheep in amherst they're still baking and cooking from scratch just like they have for almost four decades did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? let the black sheep deli help you finally celebrate this summer you deserve it treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers entrees baked goods and luscious desserts no need to do all the work yourself let the black sheep deli help you make your party a success with less stress the black sheep deli Open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986.
5: Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and family secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region, region and the Northampton Radio Group.
13: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member,
0: Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur.
7: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586 7400.
3: WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits.
2: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
6: And of course Megan Zinn playing Whatcha Reading with Kate Hudson.
15: My <laughs> guest Kate Hudson. So Kate, you were telling us about um, some of the stuff you love to read and we talked a bit about um, historical fantasy and and reading um, for the places you're visiting like Jane Austen because you were just visiting Bath. What else um, what
9: So i
14: have to read? I've got two more historical fantasies that oh, I just wanted about, to yeah, mention yeah, quickly. Yeah, One is from 15th and 16th century Japan. It's called oh, cool. Tales okay. of the Atori, mm-hmm. Um and it's about a um, again, there's this intersection between religions, um, and it also has magic in it. Mm. Um, it's, it's a little gory, as the <laughs> Japanese tend to be, but there's also really strong female characters, which yeah. I just love. Um, and then in the modern world, there are two that I want to mention. One is called Ninth House, which is by Lee Bardugo, and this is um, what Yale Secret Societies would be like oh, if gosh. magic would magic was involved. <laughs> so. some of them think that it is. Um, yeah, so, so each school, each of the particular um, secret societies has a special thing. So one can raise the dead, one can forge unbreakable contacts, and the ninth house is the one that keeps track of everybody. Um, and cool. it's really told yeah. from their perspective. Yeah. Um, so that That's one's great. really fun. And then there's another one called The Rise and Fall of Dodo, which is mm-hmm. the um, Department of Diachronic Operations, <laughs> okay. which it's sort of an um, academic-slash-government, uh, Government bureaucracy, kind of trying to change the world by time traveling, wow. and history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are those are some of the ones that not as many people have right, read. Right. Yeah. Um, I think you and I both know um, Outlander oh, and yes. A Discovery of Witches. Yeah, that, um, yeah. And that one gets special credit because the fourth of the series takes place quite a bit in Hadley. I did Yeah. In in the, the uh, seventeen seventy. Yeah.
15: Interesting. I know that Outlander doesn't. Lord, Gosh knows, I've read those enough. Um, so um, you, so you obviously find some books that are a little bit off the beaten path. How do you find like how do you find new books? How do you find things to read? Do you you know
14: a lot of multi sort of multi different areas. Yeah. I, I I get a lot of books, the new books from New York Times Book Review, of course. I go through and I just add them to my mm-hmm. add them to my Amazon list, whether it's mysteries or romance or um, biographies or that, that sort of thing. Um, Goodreads, I also find helpful. Um, some people find it a little irritating, but, um, (laughs) but I find it helpful to
15: wade, wade through it.
14: Um, but I talk to a lot of different friends and, you Mm. know, they're like, Oh, I've just, I've just read, you know, this new mystery story or this new something or other. Um, so it's, it's, it's all those different things. And then sometimes I have a book that I really like. And so then I'll plug it into, google and it'll be like if you like this this, maybe you'll you'll like that so um so i have a amazon cart that has (laughs) 250 it's got like 25 pages of 20 titles going back of all the things that i run into that i would like to read a
15: good way to manage your your, as they call it tbr list to, to be read list
14: Um, Um, And one of the things I really like that I've gotten from you are the uh, romance, the mm -hmm. non-traditional romance, Mm -hmm. especially queer romances um, that really are coming um, more and more uh, to the fore. Yes,
15: very much so. And um, a lot of really good ones out there, which, by the way, just as a little plug, Broadside Bookshop um, has a really, it's not, not huge, but they have a really nicely curated romance section with a lot of queer and a lot of... What one might call multicultural or diverse romances. Um, so that's, that's speaking of finding books, that's a good place to do it. Um, do you, as as a as somebody who teaches and thinks about education a lot, because not only are you an instructor, but you are in the College of Education, do, does what you read have an a impact on on your professional work?
14: It's yeah, they mutually influence each other. So I haven't even talked about one of the things I've been focusing on a lot are. Um, both in terms of fiction, mm-hmm. um, BIPOC authors, yes. um, even in the fantasy realm, I could mm-hmm. have brought some of those, those in. Um, but then I also do read a lot of books that are focused on um, management and neoliberalism yeah. and how do, okay. we have cri- how do we have critical approaches to management. I teach about management in higher education, um, and it's hard to find things that really talk about um, that really talk about that. Um, critical approaches to organizations so I do a lot of a lot of that kind of reading um, how to really show up as a diverse workplace Um, I have a whole area of those that I read um, and write
15: recommend any titles you know um, I'm terrible off the top of my head I won't
14: make you do that I won't
15: make you do that Um, just to know that there's good work out there that's 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 great that's great
14: um, and also neuroinclusive mm-hmm. teaching. I'm yeah. spending a lot of time thinking about. Um, a lot of our folks have, um, especially older people, are now being diagnosed with ADHD, right. and all of a sudden their worlds are being like, "Oh, the world, my world makes sense now." Yeah. And so um, I'm spending a lot of time doing reading and research about how do we help our academic world be more and more inclusive yeah. in that respect and that's
15: that's a topic that's near and dear to my heart because i am one of those people who's diagnosed with adhd late in life um and um what if you have your reading preferences changed a lot as, as you become you know if, as you since i mean i'm sure like me you read voraciously as a kid um are there still some parallels to what you kind of like to read as a kid as it has it changed a lot what 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 differences are there
14: i think it's more adding things on mm-hmm. um So, um, as a kid, you know, I loved Louisa May Alcott. I wasn't, I didn't love little women, but I loved, um, but I loved some of the other ones. Mm -hmm. And so those strong women characters, Chronicles of Narnia, I loved. So that's sort of, um, uh, that's, that's sort of what sort of that fantasy approach to things. Um, I loved Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, and I still read tons of mystery stories. Um, So I think I've more added more things on. Mm -hmm. Um, Just keep growing. Just keep keep growing. growing. Um, And there's always, like most readers, there just are not enough hours in the day. But I will put in a plug for Audible. I listen to a lot of books on tape. And when I'm doing gardening, or when Mm -hmm. I'm cleaning the house, or commuting, I read so much more yeah, now that yeah. I've added that yeah. to my...
15: And it helps you look forward to doing the dishes because, oh, I can continue my book. Um, and just before we finish up, just a quick question. like, what's, what's one book character that you like, all-time favorite character in a book who you love and why?
14: Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them. Uh,
15: well, we're um, running out of time, so you just have to tell us one.
14: Let's say Elizabeth Bennett. Oh, there we go. Very unoriginal, okay. but
15: that's a great one. That's a great one. Oh, wait, we have a little more time. So, um, <laughs> I've, I also, you know, one actually, one of, when I think about that question, one of my favorites is that I love her. I also love her father. Um, he is one of my um, one of my favorite characters. But tell us what you love about Elizabeth Bennett.
14: Well, she doesn't really care what other people <laughs> think. <laughs> um, she's very smart. She's really uh loyal to her sister yeah. and to her family. She doesn't put up with um people who have kind of uh, shallow approaches to life. Right. Um and uh she likes being outdoors. Yeah. Yeah.
15: And she Um, demands her respect. And
6: we all like being outdoors, unfortunately. (laughs) We're gonna have to leave the studio because we are out of time. Kate Hudson, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really fun.
14: It was a delight.
6: Uh, Now, what you reading, everybody, whatever you're reading, thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk today. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk.
2: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
3: Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the three billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW.
14: For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413 570
2: 1015-1400 WHMP News Information in the Arts WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group